Welcome to Rogue News. We are the preeminent geostrategic, geoeconomic, and geopolitical news show on YouTube and on the web. Join us for hard-hitting analysis, behind-the-scenes strategy, and brutal commentary. Find out why many consider us the place to get their news and information. Check us out at roguenews.com. Follow us on Twitter at Real Rogue News, Facebook, and most of the popular podcasting apps. Most of all, remember to subscribe, like, comment, and share. Hello, and welcome to today's event. A nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. Today's event is sponsored by Executive Intelligence Review Magazine. We've assembled an international group of panelists whose work in the field of military affairs, intelligence, and statecraft is brought together so that we might figure out how some 60 years after the Cuban Missile Crisis, we can walk the world back from the brink of thermonuclear destruction. Now, for those that say that we are not yet at such a point, we reply, that is exactly the hubris that will lead to miscalculation that can lead to a civilization ending and perhaps species ending thermonuclear war. And that's exactly what makes today's event necessary. Now, we're also gonna be conducting a question and answer session. And I understand that there are several persons from the press that are gonna be joining us. And therefore, we're asking that our speakers, uh, all of whom deserve a full program of their own virtually, please keep the remarks within the times that have been discussed. We wanna actually get to the discussion as quickly as we can, and everyone will have a chance to avail themselves and say as much as possible at that time. That will also help to accommodate the busy schedules of everybody that is uh, wor working together uh, with the event. Now, today's assembly was actually the idea of two people in particular, both of whom, besides appearing on the infamous Ukrainian kill list, are speaking here today. And I'd like to introduce one of them now. She'll be acting as my co-moderator today. Uh, she's become very well known in the United States and internationally in the past months and is presently a candidate for the Office of United States Senate, uh, seeking to re represent the state of New York in the Congress. It's my pleasure to introduce Diane Sayre, a musician, statesman, and a good troublemaker. Good morning, Diane. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Uh, and thank you to all of the military and strategic experts who are joining us here today. Uh, a few weeks ago, I wrote a statement asking the question whether the suppression of my campaign in the United States was a prelude to nuclear war. And I asked that question because it seems that no one is willing to consider what it means to declare that Russia cannot win, where it should be obvious to anyone that Russia cannot afford to lose, especially when one considers the fate of Napoleon or Hitler. And I would like to add for the record, unlike many people today, I believe that it was good that Napoleon and Hitler were both defeated. Um, now, when this question came up in a debate from which I was excluded for the reason I suspect that I asked, the Republican nominee only criticized the long-term Democratic Party incumbent for not launching the sanctions on Russia earlier as if that would have 
done anything to alleviate the current situation. Um, what I wanted to just quickly remind everyone about and why we're here today and why I think this is so very urgent is a fairy tale with which most of you are probably familiar by Hans Christian Andersen called The Emperor's New Suit of Clothes. Now, most people talk about the little boy at the end of that fable who points out to everyone who's been going along with the lie that the emperor has no clothes and he shatters the lie and suddenly everyone says it. But Hans Christian Andersen actually has a different point to that story because if you remember what happens after the entire village recognizes that the emperor is naked is that the emperor continues with the parade. And therefore what has been exposed is not the vanity and corruption of the emperor, but the corruption of the entire population of the village. We have a situation now where thanks to the indiscreet text message from former British prime minister, Liz Truss to secretary of state, Tony Blinken saying it is done just moments after the Nord Stream pipelines were exploded of a situation very much like the emperor being exposed for being completely naked. And the question before us, in my opinion, is whether the populace is going to find themselves more enlightened than the crowd in Hans Christian Andersen's fable. Thank you. Well, thank you, Diane. And I think you've got a guest that you're uh, going to introduce at this point. <clears throat> yes, I do. And that is a new friend, uh, Stephen Starr, who is a laboratory advisor, retired University of um, Missouri and expert on nuclear war and nuclear weapons. And I think his presentation will be a very good reminder for people who may have forgotten why we cannot afford to go there. Well, thanks for introducing me, Diane. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. It's an honor. I'm honored to be with all your guests and I fully support your candidacy. Um, would you like me to share my screen and start my presentation now? Yes, please. Okay. I can. see. Well, I think I, I'd like to talk about what a nuclear war would mean. Um, and I'll try to do that as quickly as I can. The US and Russia can each launch 800 to 1000 strategic nuclear warheads uh, in a period of about uh, five to 15 minutes. And let's see here. These are not warheads like the Hiroshima bomb. It was 15 kilotons or 15,000 tons of TNT. These warheads are seven to 50 times larger than that. For example, Russia, about half of the Russian uh, launch ready nuclear weapons uh, have an explosive power of 800,000 tons of TNT or 800 kilotons. I, for example, one warhead uh, like this detonated over New York City would create a nuclear firestorm on an average weather day that would encompass 150 square miles. And no one within that firestorm will survive. 
Stephen, we only see a white screen at the moment. Really? Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure why. Um, Maybe try stop sharing and share again. Okay. Okay, is this uh, working for you now? Yes. Yes. Okay, I apologize for that. <laughs> difficulties are always a problem. So this is a picture of a, a large thermonuclear weapon from a distance of 50 miles that would be similar to what you would see being detonated in a nuclear war with the US and Russia. And this is an image of the firestorm I mentioned. I put the picture over New York City to give people there an idea of how large one nuclear warhead would do. They would probably be a number of nuclear warheads that would be targeted in a place like New York. Um, you know, we have the U.S. and Russia have, you know, only a few hundred cities that population is greater than 100,000 people. So, you know, they've got plenty of warheads to go around. These warheads would be delivered uh, primarily. The launch-ready warheads would be coming from intercontinental ballistic missiles. Those are long land-based missiles, and they have about a 30-minute flight time, going from the U.S. to Russia or from Russia to the U.S. But they can also include submarine-launched ballistic missiles. Uh, and if these uh, subs are parked off the coast of Russia or the U.S., they can hit targets uh, there in as little as seven to 10 minutes. Now, uh, a launch would be detected here by the North American Aerospace Defense Command. It's a picture of where it is in a, buried in a mountain. They're always busy 24 hours a day getting ready for a nuclear war. Uh, if they detect it, then what will they do? Well, the US and Russia have maintained a policy of what they call launch on warning for quite some time. What this means is if a, a nuclear strike is detected on early warning systems, <clears throat> will launch a retaliatory strike um, before the, the strike arrives, while the enemy, enemy missiles are in the air and before any nuclear detonation occurs. So a false warning of attack, if it's believed to be true, would make the retaliatory strike a nuclear first strike. In other words, accidental nuclear war. There's been many false warnings of attack in the past, but you know when you have uh, low levels of tension, um, they're less likely to be believed. But you know right now we don't have that. So missile flight times determine the time allowed to order a nuclear counterattack. A president must order a retaliatory missile strike that allows his missiles to launch, you know, uh, before the incoming nuclear warheads destroy them. So. Uh, it takes at least a few minutes for early warning systems to issue an attack warning. The people at NORAD are tasked to provide a warning within three minutes. And a missile attack by subs off the coast will allow only a few minutes of time to contact the president. You know, if you have seven minute, 10 minute time from a launch to impact, doesn't give you very much time to evaluate it, have a threat conference and uh, figure out what to do. So you have three minutes to detect and confirm such an attack. Then you would have a, the president is contacted in the Situation Room if he's at the White House or somewhere else by a secure line overseas. And he has, with a sub attack, you'd have maybe 30 seconds to have a conference. You'd be told what's going on and what his options are to retaliate. And then he, he would, it takes, let's say, assume he gives the order to launch right then. It takes two to three minutes to give and transmit the launch order. It takes about two minutes for the ICBM, the Intercontinental Ballistic Missiles uh, launch to, to, to be launched and get out of harm's way. And it takes about 15 minutes for sub-missile launch. So, but just suppose a warning of attack was false. Um, 
I mentioned the nuclear, but the presidents are not at the White House, they're always followed by a nuclear suitcase. And it takes about one minute for those to order a launch. It's an automated communication device that connects the president to the National Command Authority. Now, this is um, what it would look like in Russia if they detected an attack. This is their NORAD. So I, I wanted to mention that the Russian military can issue a launch order that bypasses all lower levels of command. They're ready to um, launch within 10 minutes. They, and not just the, the president, but also their uh, defense minister and the current uh, chief of the general staff has the nuclear briefcases there. They're all able to give the order. The Russian military can follow the US pattern of launch procedures, or they can order a, a remote launch. They can push a button and override all the lower subordinate chain of command and missile launch crews. You know, they're, they're threatened if they have a missile coming at Moscow and they have, you know, they might even have less than seven minutes. So they're streamlined to attack. Once these missiles are launched, it cannot be recalled. Um, if there is an attack, a full-scale war, this is an image created by scientists that did peer-reviewed studies that show what would happen. Each click is one day. Uh, the smoke rises into the stratosphere from nuclear firestorms. You know, uh, an 800 kiloton warhead creates a 150 square mile firestorm. So, you know, 500 of those would probably create 50,000 square miles of nuclear fires. Um, the scientists estimate that 70% of the sunlight in the Northern hemisphere would be blocked from reaching the surface of the earth and about 35% in the Southern hemisphere. The smoke is above cloud level, cannot be rained out and it would relate, remain in the stratosphere for about 10 years. The first uh, one to three years, daily temperatures in Central North America and Eurasia would be below freezing. And after it, was, it would be at least 10 years before the weather would be warm enough to grow crops. So most humans and animals would starve to death. Um, and I think that's probably all you need to see. <laughs> okay, well, that was an efficient report. Uh, which will now be followed by our next speaker, Scott Ritter, United States Marine Corps, an intelligence officer, military analyst, the former chief weapons inspector, inspector to Iraq from 1991 to 98, charged with finding and destroying weapons of mass destruction. And uh, he had some uh, difficulties with some of the people that uh, didn't want him talking, and he's been talking ever since. So, Scott, we're happy to have you. Take it away. Well, thank you very much for having me, and thanks for um, for everybody for for coming. Um, you know, we live in a day and age where I, I think the American public is, um, I'm not going to say immune, but um, ignorant of the reality of nuclear conflict. I grew up during the Cold War. Um, my father was a career Air Force officer. Uh, at that time, there was a book, um, popular book called Alas Babylon, and that was a code name. It was a story about nuclear conflict, and uh, it was a term that a, a military officer would call his wife and say, nuclear war is upon us. Um, and my parents adopted that same phrase because my father was involved in Air Force units that were responsible for the delivery of nuclear weapons. And um, <laughs> I don't think there's a, a husband or a father out there that doesn't love their family and doesn't hope that their family can survive the unthinkable. And so my parents adopted that code word. And I can tell you that uh, almost every other Air Force family did the same thing. And what that means is that my mother and my sisters and I uh, grew up um, with every day potentially being 
the last day of our lives. And this was real to us. We understood it. We understood what was happening. This isn't just ducking cover underneath the desk. This is understanding the real consequences. When I lived in Germany, uh, we lived next door to a place called North Point. North Point was a nuclear weapons storage uh, facility for uh, the United States um, Army in Europe. It would be one of the first targets attacked by the Soviets if the balloon ever went up. And during the late 1970s and early 1980s, the balloon was threatening to go up on a daily basis. And so we literally got into the school bus every morning wondering if the world would end that day. And when my father disappeared into the bunker, the nuclear bunker, by the way, and was incommunicado for several days, um, the fear factor was, was genuine and real. I joined the Marine Corps to serve my country. Um, my first unit that I was assigned with was a nuclear-capable artillery unit. And we oftentimes carried out uh, exercises uh, practicing the launch of nuclear weapons. And I will tell you that um, we did our job. I mean, we, it, it, was, it was basically get the job done, train, 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 so that it's muscle memory. So that if the time comes um, and you have to do it, there's no thinking, you just do it. So the hope that um, a military professional somehow going to grow a moral conscience and say, I refuse this order, don't hope that. Military professionals carry out the mission that they're given. Um, and this came to light, the consequences came to light during a, um, a division level field exercise where we were training to stop a Soviet invasion uh, through Iran, where they were going to try and capture the warm water ports. And we simulated uh, going into Iran to, uh, to intercept them and stop them. And of course, we had insufficient forces. The Soviets broke through our lines and are moving forward. And uh, the order was given for the artillery to fire the nuclear round. And we fired it. And there's a lot of procedures involved in that, and I won't get into it. But um, the bottom line is the simulated round went down range, and we hit the, um, the Soviet units. Uh, we destroyed them. And then the follow-on echelons, which are trained to operate in a nuclear environment, passed through the uh, area. and. And then the war ended. And I said, wait a minute, we didn't get a chance to fight these, uh, these next guys. They said, no, no, it's, it's over. So why? And they said, well, because they hit us with nuclear weapons and, and we're dead. It's indexed, done. <laughs> That's the reality of nuclear war. Um, you don't get to live and fight again. You die instantly. Uh, I went on from that job to be a weapons inspector of the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, implementing the first disarmament of nuclear weapons. At that time, and people don't remember a lot. I mean, I think almost everybody in this panel is old enough to remember, but the world almost came to an end several times in the 1980s because of intermediate nuclear range missiles. Soviets had SS-20 missiles, three warheads. We deployed Pershing-2 missiles and ground-launched cruise missiles in response. The Pershing-2 at that time, if fired from a position in West Germany, could strike Moscow within seven to 12 minutes. And this is what Stephen Starr was talking about, uh, the, the absolute inability to make reasoned thinking during, uh, during that time period. And we, tr we trained them all the time. There was a scary incident in the 80s where the Norwegians launched a atmosphere's tech test rocket and the Soviets mistook it for a, a first strike. Um, fortunately, the Soviets had somebody who hit the pause button and they didn't go into the launch on, launch on warning or else none of us would be here. But the 1980s was all about dodging nuclear Armageddon. And one of the greatest things that has ever happened, it's one of the most underappreciated moments in American history is when Ronald Reagan signed the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty with uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, because we literally saved the world from suicide, from nuclear death. If it weren't for the INF Treaty, I firmly believe that there would have been an accident that spun out of control and led to a general nuclear exchange. We got rid of those missiles and we set the stage for 
a larger disarmament, strategic disarmament reduction. But we have forgotten about that since then because the Soviet went away, Russia has emerged, we don't respect the Russians as much, but now we belittle them, we don't under, we've forgotten what the reality of nuclear conflict is to the point where we're actually, we reactivated the 53rd Artillery Brigade, which was a Persian two brigade during the Cold War. They've reactivated in Germany and we're getting ready to deploy a new family of intermediate range missiles, the so-called Dark Eagle hypersonic, which gives us rapid first strike capability against Moscow, which will trigger. Now people say, oh, wait a minute, can't we win a nuclear war? Let me give you a quick war story and I'll end with this. I, ins I was an inspector outside of a Soviet missile factory they produced the SS-20s. We were ensuring they didn't produce any more. They also produced something called the SS-25. And we had a little incident in, um, in March of 1990 where um, we had this giant x-ray machine that we wanted to, by treaty, we're supposed to x-ray the SS-25 canisters to make sure they weren't hiding missiles inside. Uh, and the Soviets refused to allow it to go operational for reasons I won't go in here. It wasn't their fault. Um, but in the process during the crisis, they sent three missiles out of their plant. And um, we, we were like, why would they do this? Why would they, why would they risk the ire of the United States, risk the treaty missiles out of the plant? Well, it turned out that those missiles were SS-25 missiles. They weren't prohibited by the treaty, but they weren't missiles designed to deliver nuclear warheads. They were missiles designed to carry a communications package. They were called, they were, the, 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 the SS-25 was no longer the Topol, it was the Sirena. And the Sirena is part of a system called the Dead Hand or Perimeter. And these missiles were part of nine, a, a contingent of nine, six had already been sent out, uh, that were a special regiment that in times of conflict automatically go to the field. They're always in the field. And if we succeeded in carrying out a first strike against Russia that decapitated their leadership, the people in Washington, D.C. might think, the war gamers might think, aha, advantage America, Russia won't do anything. Russia will do everything because the dead hand takes over. Destroy uh, Russian or Soviet command and control. Communication signals are sent to the dead hand control room, stop functioning. And when they stop functioning, the dead hand kicks in. And the dead hand launches these Sirena missiles with their communication package, and they fly across the, the, the length of Russia broadcasting launch codes, which automatically send the entirety of the Soviet nuclear force to their targets, the world ends. Ladies and gentlemen, you cannot win a nuclear war. It's impossible. And yet we continue to build weapons that makes us think that we can manage the escalation of a nuclear conflict. It cannot be done. We use one nuclear weapons against the Russians. They launch everything automatically. There is no escalation control. There is no escalate to de-escalate. There's only instant Armageddon, the death of all humanity. And that's the message I want to impart. Nuclear wars cannot be won. They should never be fought. And therefore, nuclear weapons should never exist. Thank you very much, Scott. Well, back to you, Diane. Thanks. So I would like to introduce one of our international guests, uh, retired Colonel Alain Corbez, who was the former advisor to the general in command of Yunfil in Lebanon and the former international relations advisor to the French foreign ministry, Colonel Corbez, and don't, yes, good, you're unmuted, excellent. Welcome. Thank you, thank you very much for your invitation. Uh, this panel is very interesting because uh, it's 
relatively rare that uh, people talk about subjects they know. Uh, on this panel, you have people talking about something they know very well. But you can hear so many uh, so-called uh, specialists or uh, and even some uh, head of states who don't know anything about nuclear warfare. And as the predecessor, my predecessors say on this panel, uh, nuclear warfare, it's impossible. It's completely impossible. I want to remind everybody that when Charles de Gaulle, General de Gaulle, wanted to build the uh, I forget the name in English for uh, the, the dissuasion, uh, dissuasion uh, force uh, in, uh, in France to be independent and to be uh, uh, to be able to decide uh, by himself by itself if they 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 need to wage a war or not and. To be independent, he knew perfectly that we needed uh, nuclear warfare to uh, uh, impeach, to, to dissuade the possible opponents uh, to, to fight against France. He said one day, this is a, a small phrase which is very important. He answered to a question by his minister, uh, Alain Perfi who asked him about the force of rap. Are you afraid, uh, uh, Mr. President or General, are you afraid that we could kill 15 million people in one second uh, somewhere in the world? He said, yes, of course, this is frightening. But you must understand that the, uh, the, the, the force, the French force the, the frap the, the French uh, uh, nuclear power is not make is has not been created to strike other people, but to impeach to to dissuade any other people to strike on France. Then it's not made for striking others, but it's made to impeach to 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 dissuade the others possible enemies of France to strike. This is a fundamental. Uh, uh, principle of uh, even a uh, 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 philosophical uh, point of view. It's very important because when de Gaulle made the, the, the French bomb, uh, many scientists of very high level, many, he, he was attacked by so many people who said uh, stupid matter they don't know very well are able to say stupid things. And on this matter of nuclear warfare, most of the people who, who talk about that don't know really, as uh, Scott Ritter very well and clearly explained recently, and as uh, Mr. Saar, I think, uh, before him, uh, presented the, 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 what is a nuclear warfare, it is evident that it is not possible to wage a nuclear warfare. And that's why I, I, I uh, was very uh, honored and pleased to be invited in this panel 
to to uh, because you, it's your language is your speech to American citizen. I, I am not uh, in a position to say anything to the American citizen about the the next uh, very close elections. But the, your language is a language of humanity that is fundamental because the the, the nuclear uh, is has made a major change in the, the art of war uh, since the beginning of humanity. It's not a continuation with more uh, powerful means, more powerful armament of what's happened since the beginning of, uh, of humanity. It's completely different now. And the big strategies in France, the goal, of course, but also change completely our mind when we think about nuclear, because we all these great uh, spirits, these great thinkers, were continuing to have the same uh, processing of uh, thinking about war, uh, instead of changing completely, because from the beginning of humanity, it was the coercition uh, principle which was uh, ruling the world. And the, the coercition is, I, am, uh, I have an army which is uh, superior to yours, then I impose my will to you. But now with the nuclear war, it's different. And that is why the French nuclear warfare is not made to strike others, but to destroy others to strike us. Now it's not coercion, but it is dissuasion, which is completely different. It says, you cannot strike me because if you, you dare to do that, I strike you at power than you, you will have uh, uh, you will have uh, destructions in your country which, which are not acceptable. Then the, 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 the principle of nuclear warfare is completely changing the beginning, uh, the, the art of war since the, the beginning of humanity. I, I try to explain that in English with my French accent, but uh, uh, I would like to, 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 to explain that more precisely in, in French because it's a, it's a fundamental uh, principle. You know, you, you cannot continue to think about a nuclear warfare as we have made for the big, since the beginning of humanity, saying, uh, as I am stronger than you, you have to obey to me, that's all. It's impossible now. Look at Kim Jong-un in, in North Korea. Now, even the, 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 the stronger of the world, even uh, uh, Washington cannot force Kim Jong-un by a military mean, because if he has some uh, missiles which could destroy part of America. And that's why now America cannot anymore uh, force Kim Jong-un of North Korea excuse, to excuse do me, Colonel something. Thank, thank, okay. thank you. It's all right. No, we, and we appreciate both of your enthusiasm and the fact you try to speak to us directly in English. We got your message. 
a little bit of a problem with your signal, but when we get to questions and answers, please uh, feel free to say whatever else you'd like to say. I'd like to introduce now Colonel Richard Black, former head of the U.S. Army's Criminal Law Division at the Pentagon, former Virginia State Senator, and uh, a notorious uh, interventionist. Uh, so, Colonel Black, good to see you. Thank you very much, Dennis. <clears throat> Today, as we speak, uh, mankind is in a foot race against globalist demons who are determined to trigger World War III while they still can. The White House is directing NATO in a hellish game of thermonuclear chicken gambling that President Putin will keep a cool, steady hand on Russia's nuclear trigger. So why is this desperate rush to war? Well, just two days ago, the Wall Street Journal uh, ran an article uh, headlined, Republican opposition to helping Ukraine grows, uh, the Wall Street Journal finds, becoming a partisan issue. Now, here's the guts of the article. They say that 48% of Republicans now say that the U.S. is doing too much in Ukraine. The opposition to arming Ukraine has risen a stunning 700% just since the spring. But the resistance is stronger still because today, uh, only 35% of Republicans and 45% of independents still support sending more aid to Ukraine. Most Republicans and most independents say no more aid for Ukraine. What is happening because of this is that Ukraine has become a Democrat war. Now, the midterm elections are looking bad for the war hawks. Wall Street Journal just reported a new poll that showed a very dramatic 27% shift toward Republicans among suburban white women who have formed in recent years a, a key part of the Democrat base. As of today, it appears that Republicans are almost certain to win the House, uh, where the Democratic majority is already razor thin. If Republicans flip just four seats from Democrat to Republican, the Republicans will win control. Virginia alone, just one state, could conceivably flip three of those four states red. Uh, Republicans are also quite likely to win the Senate, uh, which right now is tied 50-50, uh, half and half Republicans and Democrats with Vice President breaking ties. Uh, already, we see uh, Republican senators coming on the scene, like J.D. Vance in Ohio, someone who is virtually certain to win that election, and possibly Blake Masters of Arizona. And both of these are opponents of new war funding. Uh, they, this new wave will join the existing opponents of, uh, of war funding in the Senate. NATO and Ukraine are acutely aware of Republican anti-war momentum going into the elections, and they are not sitting idle, and uh, they are taking action. So this realization 
that there will be this electoral shift uh, has accelerated the drive towards World War III, uh, which is well underway. Now in April and May, the US shared signals intelligence that helped Ukraine assassinate 13 Russian generals and uh, which sank the flagship of the Russian fleet, the cruiser Moskova. NATO anti-ship missiles sent 300 young Russian sailors to the bottom of the Black Sea in that attack. On May the 19th, there was a headline in Business Insider that read, quote, Biden is furious about the leaks saying US intelligence helped Ukraine kill Russian generals and sink its warship. When the US coordination was disclosed, President Biden was furious, not because it happened, but because it was revealed, because it was made clear to the American public what had happened. The sanctions imposed by the US and the European Union, uh, of course, have cut most of Europe's vital national natural gas imports from Russia by now. With winter approaching this year, protests have been breaking out across Europe, people demanding uh, fuel for heat. And uh, the, uh, the people are demanding that, uh, that the gas pipelines from Russia into Germany and from there to the rest of Europe be reopened. In order to defang these growing protests, NATO has sabotaged the Nord Stream 1 and 2 undersea pipelines, and they did this on September the 26th. They did it in order to ensure that any attempts to reopen them before winter would be futile. Now, the White House approved those attacks on Europe's pipelines. It's important to understand the United States is NATO and NATO is the United States. We dominate it not only financially, but with the key officials who run the organization. Uh, as was mentioned earlier, there was, uh, after the uh, explosion of, of both of those underseas pipelines, there was a cell phone text from British Prime Minister Liz Truss to Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, uh, and it was intercepted just one minute after these massive detonations. In the cryptic message, she simply said, it's done. On October the 8th, British commandos planned a sophisticated Ukrainian attack or series of attacks actually on the Kerch Bridge connecting Crimea to mainland Russia. Now Russian citizens, we need to understand, uniformly consider Crimea to be part of Russia. It has been historically for 500 years and they consider it to be today, which it is under Russian law. NATO's attacks on the Crimea, <clears throat> NATO attacks to destroy the Kerch Bridge are uniformly considered as attacks on Russia itself. <clears throat> Moving forward, CNN now reports 
And as recently as November the 2nd, saboteurs have infiltrated deep inside Russia itself. And they launched an attack, destroying Russian attack helicopters with time bombs. Now this attack was 600 miles inside Russia from the Ukrainian border. However, it was just 21 miles inside the Russian border from Latvia, another uh, very aggressive NATO member state. These attacks inside NATO uh, are designed to make it possible for Russia to trip up and to miscalculate, perhaps triggering a full-out nuclear response by NATO, uh, one that could trigger the, the ultimate conflagration. The United States, by the way, and I know this from personal experience, often does this type of thing where they will, they will launch some sort of a, a mission that is designed to cause the other side to overreact or to react in a way that is negative and to provide the pretext than for a counterattack. Um, so this is, this is a very, very dangerous thing, attacking inside of Russia itself. In late October and November, two ultra-secretive US ballistic missile submarines surfaced in a dazzling display of nuclear brinksmanship. A clear warning to Russia that if their nuclear missiles or, or that if, if, if Russia responded uh, to the nuclear, to, to the, I'm, I apologize, if they responded to the Ukrainian attacks that were being launched against them, and they somehow crossed some invisible line, that nuclear missiles from NATO would rain down on Moscow and St. Petersburg in a Pearl Harbor style nuclear surprise attack on Russian cities. This is clearly the only purpose of deliberately surfacing those two uh, ballistic missile firing submarines. <clears throat> We've reached a point where it is absolutely vital that the White House plans and the British plans must be exposed. The decline in support for the Ukrainian war uh, has been driven by the fact that voters are learning that a violent coup was instigated by the CIA and British MI6 back in 2014. And it was that coup that overthrew Ukraine's duly elected government, uh, leading directly to the present war in Ukraine. <clears throat> As the roots of war <clears throat> trace back to uh, Obama's White House and to number 10 Downing Street, support for the war, it has been collapsing. Support for the war is likely to wither even more once voters are told how British Prime Minister Boris Johnson flew unexpectedly to Kiev in order to halt peace talks that had nearly ended the fighting between Russia and Ukraine just two months after fighting started 
and before most of the casualties that ever occurred. Since the time that Boris Johnson <clears throat> broke up those peace talks, clearly with the approval of the White House, British and American insistence on continuing the war has resulted in the death of easily 100,000 good soldiers on both sides. It's crippled twice that number, and it has devastated the region. Joe Biden could end this war at any time. He chooses not to, he chooses war. Our government is no longer responding to its people. Instead, it obeys the dictates of globalists, the boys from Davos and a whole matrix of other globalist outfits, the kings, the princes, captains of industry, the billionaire celebrities and dynasty families. Those whose true allegiance is to no land and no people but themselves. Men and women who grow fabulously rich on the blood of the men they kill. In closing, I, I just like to thank uh, the Schiller Institute, uh, which has become the preeminent uh, voice for world peace. And I'd like to thank uh, the heroic young men and women, the gutsy kids in their early 20s, uh, whose raw courage is confronting some of these, some of these politicians and exposing them for what they're doing. Uh, thank you very much for having me here today. Thank you very much, Colonel Black. And let me just say to everybody uh, that uh, we're, uh, we, I know that Colonel Black and so a couple of others have some scheduling uh, uh, matters. So I'd like everybody to try to keep within the time limits so that we can get to the conversation and have some exchange. Uh, back to you, Diane. Well, now another guest from France, a longtime associate of Lyndon LaRouche, uh, three times, I hope that's right, presidential candidate and leader of the French Party Solidarité et Progrès, uh, my friend Jacques Cheminade. Please unmute. Thank you, Diane. Thank you, Dennis, for this invitation. Here from France, our message, message is that your voice, Diane, should be heard in the US Senate. I am Jacques Cheminade, president of our party, Solidarité Progrès in France, but I am not speaking only on behalf of myself. I'm echoing the voice of most of the people in the field that I met this week campaigning for peace. They don't yet know Diane, they don't know yet who you are, but when I describe who she is, they deeply understand that she is a key factor to change United States from a policeman of the world using military force on behalf of the financial oligarchy to again becoming a beacon of hope, a true American beacon of hope. Here, it is now 
quite widely spread that Russia has been provoked and trapped to militarily intervene in Ukraine and that we are on the brink of an insane nuclear war. Now, the declarations from the main advisors to President Zelensky are more and more widely known. Those having said since, 20, since 2019 that Russia has to be provoked and trapped into a war with Ukraine according to the plans of the Rand Corporation. Diane is therefore the only candidate calling for peace, security, stability, and cooperation as a whole in the present world. That's why I advise all the voters who believe and understand that peace is our common aim and the common aim of humanity. I advise them to vote for her, including those that have the candidates being prevented to run because of the rules-based order in the state of New York. Discrepancies, disagreements, and even boundaries should be thrown to the river on behalf of a common commitment for peace, making of our world the best of all possible worlds. No exclusion, peace based on shared development. Thank you. Thank you, Jacques. Uh, next, we're gonna hear from Dr. Clifford Karakoff former senior staff member of the U.S. Senate Committee on Foreign Relations and president of the Washington Institute for Peace and Development. Thank you, Dennis. Um, as long as this um, Ukraine war is going on, uh, we are living under a heightened threat of nuclear war. And the only way this war can be terminated is by a diplomatic process. Uh, between Russia and Ukraine, between Russia and Europe, between Russia and the US, NATO. It, it, there will be a, a diplomatic process at some point, but it's better to have it sooner, much sooner rather than later. Uh, Russia characteristically has an old school approach to diplomacy. They, in this recent days, summoned the British ambassador and uh, expressed their profound concerns to her about the attacks on um, Russian infrastructure, bridges and pipelines. They also, as another diplomatic step, informed the United Nations Security Council in a closed session about the details they allege involving British direct uh, action uh, and involvement with these, what are acts of war, although the Russians have called them acts of terrorism, maybe prudently, but they are acts of war, of course. The Russian ambassador remains in London so relations have not been broken. The Russian ambassador at London so far has not been recalled for consultations in Moscow, that could happen. 
the public revelations that the Russian foreign ministry has stated that it will reveal about the British involvement direct uh, remains to be seen. And uh, the effect on global public opinion and the effect on foreign policies of various countries also will remain to be seen depending on what revelations uh, the Russians make public. Meanwhile, Ukraine is de facto a partitioned state with much of the South and the East now within Russian borders. We can expect further Russian advances westward as we learn from our military uh, experts such as Scott Ritter and Colonel Black. Whether Poland will grab Western Ukraine and Galicia is an open question. At present, Ukraine refuses diplomacy and peace negotiations. Thus, war termination is delayed. You can't have war termination without a diplomatic process. And Ukraine refuses to engage in a diplomatic process with Russia, according to its own president and parliament. So there is no present diplomatic process. Uh, we must uh, advocate starting one up as soon as possible. The diplomatic process was torpedoed, as Colonel Black pointed out, by Boris Johnson in his April visit to Ukraine. Now let's recall the context here. France and Germany failed to advance the Minsk II process. And the Minsk II process was endorsed by the United Nations Security Council, Resolution 2202 of 1915. Or 2015, excuse me. Ukraine as a state emerged out of World War I. <laughs> and Ukraine as a state will emerge from this conflict, uh, no doubt, in a much altered uh, condition. Ukraine was created a state in 1918 by, as a result of the Brest Litovsk Treaty between Germany. Uh, Imperial Germany and the Bolshevik regime, uh, which it put into power in Russia by aiding Lenin during the war. In turn, Lenin gave to Ukraine Russian territory, which was the Eastern and Southern area, traditionally called Novorossiya, and we refer to it broadly as Donbass these days. Much of that area, but not all, has returned to Russia. Now, as we go forward, does Europe want further escalation that will lead to a general European war? Or even to a nuclear war? Will Russia launch a winter offensive to recover Odessa and the remaining parts of historic Novorossiya? We, it could, and we will see. But, uh, in my view, clearly, we must have and we must insist on as peace advocates uh, a diplomatic process to begin as soon as possible to prevent a general European war and to terminate the present war as soon as possible. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much, Cliff. And I just want to say for people who have just joined us, we're in the uh, presentation part of our a nuclear war cannot be won and must not be fought. 
uh, and we have uh, just a few more speakers. Uh, we want to keep it moving at this pace because we have various people who are online already to ask questions and the discussion. <clears throat> this is kind of how why we brought people together. So Diane, I'm going back to you. You introduce the next guest. Great. I am happy to have such um, a French delegation. I think we have to have a fight to restore the principle of, of uh, republics on this planet as opposed to empire. Uh, so I'm going to introduce General Dominique Delawarde, who is uh, formerly the military attache of the French embassy to Washington, DC, who was the commander of the 7th Alpine Infantry in Croatia and many other things. And I'm really glad you could join us and thank you for being here. Yes. <clears throat> thank you, uh, Diana, uh, for inviting me. First of all, I would like to say that I was not a defense attaché on the French embassy in Washington, but I was a, a liaison officer uh, to the um, to the school uh, war college in um, in uh, Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. So that being okay. said, I would like to come back on uh, all intervention that have been made. Uh, on the first one. I would like to thank him to, to remind to all people what is really a nuclear war. For Scott Tritter, I would like to tell him that all what he said and all what he writes is uh, very well uh, known by the French people now. Personally, I promote all what you write because I agree with all you, you write and all you say. So uh, that's, uh, that's, I endorse your, uh, your parole, uh, your speech, your text, 100%. Uh, for, uh, Senator Black, also, all what you say, all what you write is very well known in France. Mm -hmm. We follow that. We, uh, when I say we, it's myself, of course, but also of my, my um, fellow um, camarade, generals, former retired generals or, or, or officers of the French army, Almost uh, all people from my generation, from our generation, agree with what you say and what you are uh, what you are describing about the situation. For uh, Alain Corvez and Jacques Cheminade, of course, I know them uh, more more than others because we we talk together. Uh, on a regular basis, basis. And for Diane Sayer, I would like uh, that to say that I am not uh, an American citizen. I am just a simple uh, and humble French citizen, uh, citizen of the world. 
And uh, I would like to say that, of course, I cannot endorse a candidate for uh, U.S. elections because it's not, not my uh, my role and my place to to say that. Uh, in in fact, uh, it could be almost my place because I have a large part of my family, sisters, and nephew and grandnephew who are American citizens. About forty of them. My sister, which is an American citizen, has 24 grandkids, and uh, I don't know how many grand-grandkids. So uh, I have a lot of American in my own family. But what I would like to say about Diana Sayer is uh, that she is among the very rare candidates to understand the situation and uh, on the interna international uh, sphere. She understands very well what is uh, going on in uh, Ukraine. And uh, uh, when she says that Russia cannot afford to lose this war, she says that she is right. And the danger is here. If the US leadership, the current US leadership doesn't understand that. We have the risk of uh, an accident, of a miscal miscalculation, and uh, that could lead us to a world that nobody wants. Nobody on the earth wants this war. I don't think this war will come from. Russia. They have they have said numerous times that they don't want to fight a war that nobody can won, win. But I am afraid of the globalists leading uh, the U.S. foreign policy now, and certain of these guys doesn't understand really the situation. And certain of these guys could make a, a very great mistake. So I think voices should be heard in U.S. Senate to make this politi the politi U.S. politicians understand better the situation. It's uh, that I uh, I am. I have to recognize that uh, Diana Sayre says today the truth to people, to her fellow New, New York uh, state uh, citizen. And uh, she deserves to, to be a senator just to to bring this uh, voice, this voice, this powerful voice to say, stop. And uh, we, we, we did, we solved this kind of crisis in uh, 1960, 62. We, we were able at that time to make a compromise. Why not now? 
we have we have to respect the other camp, the, uh, the security of Russia. We have to respect the people of Donbas. Let them practice their language and let them go where wherever they heard will bring them. That all at, at I, that all what I have to add to all what was already said by Scott Ritter, uh, Senator Black, and also uh, Mr. Kirakov, Kirakov, and uh, of course, Diane uh, Serge, Jacques Cheminade, Colonel Corvez. Thank you very much, General Dominique Guillard. I just wanted to say something, by the way, about this issue of the French and why we have all these French guys. <laughs> well, uh, you know, the French have always shown up whenever there's a serious American that they can find. It's not often. That's why you often see this. Ben Franklin was the first. And with Lafayette's discussions with Washington and with others of America about the issue of slavery, you had some serious changes in America that never, never get admitted. And so when you're talking about getting serious about the actual Declaration of Independence and the real American Constitution, you can count on the French if you can count on you, yourself. I'd like to now introduce uh, Ray McGovern, former senior analyst, US Central Intelligence Agency, uh, uh, and a man who has well known as a creative, nonviolent, uh, and also musical interventions. <laughs> Ray. Thank you, Dennis, but I don't think I'll sing for my supper today. Uh, I just want to express my thanks for being invited to, together with this rather substantive group for a substantive discussion. My hat's off to Schiller Institute for arranging these seminars. I have to say that in 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis, exactly 60 years ago, as was just alluded to, we came very close to a nuclear exchange. I knew that personally because I was a second lieutenant in the U.S. Army Infantry Intelligence, and I was really near Key West. Had I been, had I been closer, I would have been with the invasion course that thankfully was never sent in. Let me jump forward to uh, several years later, precisely 1983. As has already been mentioned, the 80s was a very, very delicate and very dangerous time. I was on active duty with the CIA at the time. Actually, I was briefing the Vice President, Secretary of State, and Secretary of Defense on any given morning. Um, Ronald Reagan thought it a good idea to call Russia, the Soviet Union at the time, the evil empire. And he was authorizing all manner of covert action and all other kinds of things going on. Uh, on Labor Day weekend, <clears throat> KAL 007, a Korean airline, was shot down with all its uh, passengers killed. It was shot down well inside Russia. And Secretary Schultz, who normally was a little bit more circumspect, uh, took after the Russians and authorized a videotype that deleted the important segment. What do I say? I'm saying here 
that did the Russians intentionally shot, shoot down a passenger aircraft? Yes, they did. Second question, did they know it was a passenger aircraft? No, they didn't. We had the intercepts. As a matter of fact, well, I'm not going to tell you what I told Schultz, but he acquiesced in his uh, film people cutting out that part of the intercept that was played at the UN. And that guru in charge of that unit later said, you know, all, all countries lie. You have to lie when it's, when it's convenient to lie. Okay, so you have evil empire. You have KAL shoot down deliberately distorted to blacken the Russians. That was on Labor Day. In November, we had an exercise called Able Archer, a nuclear exercise, which simulated the real thing so closely that the Russians thought it was the real thing. We could tell that from our national technical means, okay? It came really, really close. The vice president was going to be involved in this uh, in this simulated exercise, what the Russians didn't know was simulated. They had to, they had to assume the worst. Luckily, we had a spy courtesy of the British, uh, Gorzievsky was his name, and he told us, look, <laughs> Andropov and these other guys are taking this for real, for God's sake, tone it down. What do we do? Well, there was one guy, a colleague of mine named Mel Goodman, who had the guts to go to Bobby K Bob Robert Casey, who is the head of analysis in, in, in CIA, and say, look, Bob, they're taking this seriously. Tell the White House to tone it down. Get the vice president out of this thing. Tone that exercise down. Now, Bobby Gates famously said later, it's not part of my job jar, not part of my job jar to make the Russians happy. And besides, they would never, never retaliate for us. They would never consider. No, I'm not going to tell the White House anything. To his credit, Bill Goodwin went to Bill Casey, Bobby Gates' supervisor. And Casey was persuaded he called the White House and they toned it down. What's the, what's the lesson here? Well, we're all able to have this discussion because in that set of circumstance, where it really looked like the Russians had to do the dead hand or worse, it was toned down. So what does this all mean? Um, I think that we have to really get up and do something about this. We can't sit on our derrieres to borrow some French. <laughs> and vive la France for the French participants here. Uh, we have to kind of do more than uh, spread some truth around, although for those of us who have some access to uh, independent media, we have to do that. Now, when I say access to independent media, uh, wonder of wonders, after a six or seven year hiatus, I was invited onto Democracy Now! just this week, and I debated with uh, Matt Duss, who is described as a foreign policy advisor to to whom? To the guy who lost the nomination to Hillary Clinton because she kind of manipulated the results. So what happens? Ben, uh, Dust is, is arguing uh, all kinds of things that aren't resembling reality. And I'm saying, my God, is this the kind of, is this the kind of advice that uh, people in the Democratic Party 
uh, are are being being given. And so I thought, well, you know, we need to get this thing out. And you can see it with you can see what the debate uh, talked about. But the interesting thing is that nobody has been given given the real scoop here. Uh, those of us who are participating here know the real story. It's an amazing amount of relevant detail that has already been adduced here by previous speakers. We have to get off our rear ends and do something. Now, some of you know I, I favor uh, the, the Noah principle. Noah as in the Bible, okay? Now, uh, the Noah principle is this. No more awards for predicting rain. Uh, awards only for building arcs. So each of us has to kind of pick out the plank that is closest to us, the place where we are most uh, most reliably judged, and 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 get that plank and start nailing it into the bottom, the hull of this arc. And that means getting off our derriers once again and doing what we need to do now. The, 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 the problem here is that we cannot expect immediate success, okay? This is not about success. It's about being faithful. It's about telling the truth. One small vignette to finish here. One of my mentors, a fellow named Daniel Berrigan, after they did this, this terrific uh, uh, burning of draft cards in front of this little town outside Baltimore, sitting in the only federal facility there, the post office, okay? And he's thinking, my God, you know, was this worth doing? I mean, people are going to call me a commie. People are going <laughs> to, they couldn't call him in Putin's pocket yet, but the equivalent, uh, people will deride me. Was this worth doing? And then it came to me, and this is the core here. The good is worth doing because it's good. Uh, results. Results are not unimportant, but they are secondary. They are secondary to the goodness of the act. So what's the, what's the principle here? You go out and you do good. You don't expect immediate success. Why were those Chinese students on Tiananmen Square singing, we shall overcome? Why were the, the, the photos of Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King Jr. prominently displayed in this Palestinian small section of the Knesset in Tel Aviv? Immediate success, well, it'd be great to have, but it's not necessary. We need to create an example for those, if we're lucky enough, who come after us. So. Each of us needs to kind of figure out what we need to do. A derriere sitting, no longer permitted. Uh, uh, predicting rain, no longer predicted. We got to stick our necks out. And for those of us who have a little gray in our hair, okay, there is an advantage. And I'll tell you what it is. I've learned this. <laughs> I've learned this from personal experience. And that is most people kind of dismiss young people when they get arrested or when they get beat up. Ah, they got to come and tell them, look what they were doing now. But old people, not so much. Old people have a big, big advantage. Why? Well, because most people, even Americans, they don't, they don't like old people getting beat up. So those of you who have a little gray in your hair, 
it's really nice for us to talk, but it's really required in these circumstances to do more than just talk. You have a big advantage. A big advantage comes with age. It comes with sympathy for old people. Some people even listen to old people. So put it in play before it's too late. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ray. I wasn't expecting that conclusion. I, I like that. Uh, the final uh, speaker that we're going to be hearing today, and I said at the beginning that there were two people that had uh, proposed today's uh, gathering. Uh, you've heard from the first of those this uh, earlier, and now we have the second person. Uh, I think people know something about her. This is Helga Sepp LaRouche, the founder and head of the International Schiller Institute. Helga? Well, I want to thank all of the speakers who have spoken so far, because the biggest problem we have is that while I'm convinced that this is the most dangerous moment in history ever, simply because, you know, we never were as close as the extinction of the entire human species, the normal people have no inkling. Um, I'm saying this, you know, because I remember very well, several people alluded to it at the beginning of the 80s when we had the medium range missile crisis and the SS-20 and the Pershing II where all the time on launch on warning, a few minutes away from World War III, people knew about it. And there were hundreds of thousands of people in the streets of Europe. And now the so-called peace movement hardly exists. I mean, it started now that people started to take to the streets, but compared to where we are, it is absolutely inadequate. So I fullheartedly want to thank the people who all contributed to this event. And I only want to mention one other thing is when the uh, war danger existed and it became clear at the end of the 70s already into the early 80s, my late husband, Lyndon LaRouche, designed uh, a security architecture, which was called the strategic, or was later called the Strategic Defense Initiative, which was implemented or put officially on the agenda by President Reagan on the 23rd of March, 1983. The Soviet Union at that, at, at that time rejected it. But I think, you know, we need such an approach today. We need a new international security architecture because if we do not get off this geopolitical confrontation, um, it is a question of time, especially with the going on collapse of the financial system that the war danger will come to the point of no return. So we have conducted with the Schiller Institute since April of this year, a whole bunch of conferences where we promoted the idea of having such a new international security architecture, which would take into account the interest of every single country on the planet. And that must emphatically include Russia, China, and all the other states, which you know are on the list of being rogue states and, and <clears throat> so forth. So I would really like that, you know, immediately we have to get an awareness of the danger, but then we have to go to the next step and think, how can we change the world situation in such a way that we for sure indefinitely and, and sustainably eliminate this danger of civilization? So since we have done that, many of us have 
ended up on the list of the Ukrainian government of the, the center to counter disinformation, so-called, and, and another killer list, the Mirot Voretz list. Um, this is financed by the US government and by NATO, and that should be a part of the thing which absolutely must become uh, discussed internationally. So I also want to say, you know, while I'm not an American citizen, I fullheartedly want uh, Diane to succeed because she represents the kind of American which can bring back the pride to be an American and not what is the present condition where the anti-Americanism is increasing worldwide. And, you know, that, that cannot remain like that because we have to include the United States in the new arrangement. And it is not enough if the countries of the global South and Russia and China are creating a new system. We have to move to a situation where every country is part of the world we are creating. And that's all I wanted to say. Thank you very much, Helga. And uh, now what we're gonna do is we're gonna go to questions. Uh, now, I understand I'm supposed to tell people to raise their hands and uh, Diane will help me with this so that we don't miss anything. <clears throat> this often is a bit of a problem when you do these transitions. Let me also just check one thing uh, because I was told earlier that Colonel Black, you might have to get going. Is that the case? And if so, I'll let you uh, say a few things here. Yeah, I'll have I'll have uh, just a few minutes, and then I, I will just disappear from the screen. But uh, anyway, I I really I really am, am grateful to everyone for coming together. I appreciate what Helga is doing by orchestrating this because you have a a major organization that uh, uh, you know in the past there were uh, there were organizations like Code Pink that. Uh, advocated for peace and I think they still do but there there there's no resonance to their message anymore so it appears that the the lone remaining voice for peace as an institution is the Schiller Institute and I, I very much appreciate what you're doing because really all of our lives lives of my children my grandchildren are at stake and uh, I don't think most people are even aware of it, but uh, what you're doing is extremely important. And I appreciate what all of the, all the members of the Schiller Institute uh, do. Thank you very much, Colonel Black. Um, uh, let me just, so Diane, do you happen to know how that this, uh, you see anybody there? I have yes. one person. Okay, then you go first and then I've got a second thing, go ahead. Okay, there's several people with their hands up here and um, we'll, if everyone is brief with your questions or comments, we'll get to get everybody in. But maybe we'll first uh, go to Australia to someone newly known to us who I know is also working to change things there, uh, Daryl Egan. And please say which uh, press you represent. Or organization. Uh, hello, Diane. Hi. Hi. Uh, look, my name is Daryl Egan. I'm a member of the United Nations Association of Australia over here. Um, I'm a, on a bit of a night shift tonight. It's quite late here. Um, my my question would have to go to Scott Ritter. Um, I followed a lot of Scott's work. 
Um, and is Scott there at the moment? I think he's still there. You're correct. Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay, Scott. Um, yeah, as a member of United Nations Association, one of my of Australia, one of my lecturers was actually uh, Tim Ford. You might know him. He was the UN uh, head of UN mission um, from from Australia from 1998 to 2000. Um, just going into a a question with you in regards to our end of the world and AUKUS. Um, currently, the uh, new Labor government has come into power here in Australia. Um, our pivot to Asia of, of such started more in 2007 when uh, John Howard uh, signed Australia up to the Security Quadrilateral uh, Group. Uh, and then after that, Kevin Rudd briefly, the next Prime Minister, took us out of it. His career didn't last very long after that. Julia Gillard challenged his leadership. And then when Julia Gillard got in... Okay, so a question in here time soon. got together with uh, President Obama in the pivot to Asia and opened up a base in Darwin, another US base. Um, that US base has just recently got some B-52 bombers that are capable of carrying nuclear weapons dropping there recently. Uh, from that, um, and at that time when Julia Gillard was in power, I was in Southern China for four years, uh, experienced a lot there. And then I saw the deterioration of the relationship between Australia and China move more rapidly around 2015 from the trade under, under uh, Kevin Rudd. We had um, the, the, the quad group then got back on board with Australia under Malcolm Turnbull. Uh, going back to the quad group, we know who started that was Dick Cheney. We have a wonderful Dick Cheney. Um, and we moved into the quad group. Now under Scott Morrison, who was a previous prime minister, we moved into AUKUS. He signed up a deal with nuclear weapons, oh, sorry, nuclear uh, powered submarines. First, he wanted to get a deal with France, but he left them in the lurch and uh, Emmanuel Macron wasn't very happy uh, to our French guests. He called him a liar. Could you on... ask you a question, Can you please? come to the, yeah. Yeah, oh, I'll get to Not an question. essay, dude. So in regards to this, and then Australia also signed a deal uh, with the US to develop hypersonic weapons under the AUKUS deal. Uh, Scott or anybody there can answer me about the nearer we are to World War Three, with China and Australia being used as a proxy um, in a war with China, with these developments with AUKUS, if anyone could come in on that, please. Well, I mean, since the question was uh, directed in my way, um, let's let's just be frank. I mean, let's just put the cards on the table. Australia is not a military powerhouse, so the idea of Australia serving as a proxy. Uh, you know, a U.S. war against China is absurd in the extreme. Uh, Australia would be a tool, a minor tool. Uh, Australia provides some uh, geographic uh, advantages in terms of the basing of U.S. military equipment, but the Australian military is useless in a general war against China. Uh, even your submarines would play a minor role, and that role would be terminated rather quickly because I don't believe they would survive a, uh, a general war against China. This is what Australia needs to understand. Um, 
you know, America, the, the America, this isn't, you know, World War II with the Japanese empire knocking on your door where you needed the United States to come in and be your close ally to defeat the, the Japanese back. The Chinese aren't knocking on your door with, um, with an invasion force. The Chinese are knocking on your door with economic opportunity, economic opportunity that the United States is not able or willing to provide. Um, Australia needs to look out for its own best interests, and its own best interests will be defined by a mutually beneficial relationship with that power or group of powers who seek to respect Australia's needs, wants, and desires insofar as they pursue the peaceful coexistence with the rest of the world. The United States is not offering that. The United States is offering you death, destruction, nuclear annihilation. You put American bombers on your soil, your soil becomes a target for Chinese nuclear weapons. And Australia will disappear that quick. So it's up to the Australians. You're, you're allegedly a sovereign nation. Um, act like one. If not, lower the Australian flag, kick the queen out, and admit your status as an American colony. Uh, yeah, totally agree with your comments. Thank you so much, Scott. Um, uh, I, I'm just very scared. Yeah, Pivot off him, please. Yeah, um, let, me just, just, let me just say yeah. this. I, I just want to first of all thank our friend from Australia because I I, I just checked the world clock and am, am I correct? Is it three thirty in the morning there? Is that yeah, yeah. I've had a good dose of coffee and I'll probably have a good sleeping on sun, this Sunday morning. Yeah, yeah. So so we appreciate the the, the question, your presence. Uh, and, and all of that. And I just wanted to say that because we were, uh, uh, and, that, and this is to everyone else who's on. We, we're first, we're going to, we're, we're going to list a few people, Diane, we should list a few people we're going to ask questions next. So they know that so we have noticed them. Um, we invite everybody to stay on uh, as many as our speakers are, are, are able to stay with us. We hope we can answer every question. Um, we, there's a lot of questions coming in written and otherwise. So if you want to direct your question, including by writing, let us know. Just make sure you put it in the chat or wherever you have to. So with that, Diane? Well, I see Ray wiggling his fingers. I think that means he wants to say something. Um, so he can do that. Maybe, Ray, I don't know if you saw Steve Starr's note in the chat because he could deal with both of those at once, directing a question to you about whether you think that people running the White House, the neocons, believe that the U.S. could actually, quote unquote, win a nuclear war. Uh, this idea was expressed in an article by, I can't read the rest of it, uh, but uh, Lieber Steve, and do you want to- in foreign affairs in 2006. They claimed the U.S. had established nuclear primacy over Russia, meaning the U.S. could wipe out all of Russia's nuclear retaliatory capacity with the U.S. nuclear first strike against Russia. Do Blinken, Newland at all subscribe to that? And who's supposed to answer this? <laughs> sorry, I couldn't unmute. Ray, go ahead and respond okay. to both. Yeah, I and then, just, yeah. Wanted, just wanted to second uh, what Scott said about the Australians. You know, before Iraq, there was only one Australian intelligence officer who spoke out and said this is a crock this is this is stupid and this is contrived there are no weapons of mass destruction in iraq his name was andrew wilkie he's a, a leader in the australian parliament now he has no following why because the australians are the obedient germans of the east 
And the sooner they wake up to the fact that they're being diddled, that they're being used, the better. That's what I have to say to my friends, and I have lots of them in Australia. Get off your derrieres. Okay, now, with respect to Blinken and not, not Blake, Blinken and Sullivan and those unwashed sophomores, I don't know what they think. The important thing is what Putin thinks about their rather cavalier attitude toward, toward blaming him of raising the subject of tactical nuclear forces being used in Ukraine. Uh, what problem do I have with that? Well, just that he never said that. Get this, folks. Putin, Lavrov, the others in Russia, they never said that we might use tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine. There are lots of reasons for that. The main one is that it's not necessary. They are going to win anyway. So here's Putin looking at this and what's going on here? Uh, they're distorting what I said. There's a major New York Times and other major media campaign to think that I'm, I'm going to use tactical. What do they have in mind? Now, again, he has to turn to his generals. They have to assume the worst. That's what makes this situation so delicate, what the Germans would call labile. It is very delicate. And we have to get the, the word out. And when, when Putin's uh, speeches are being distorted in so substantive a way, we need to call them on it. And unfortunately, <clears throat> there are only a few Andrew Wilkies here in the United States. Okay, Diane, you have the... Sure, I couldn't tell if Scott was trying to say something. I see he posted something. I just like to point that out or, oh no, Derek, point. anyway, there's the thing in the chat that people should see. So I'd like to go to CJ from, I think, Rogue News. And then after that, Suzanne Monk. But CJ, you there? I am, yes, thank you, uh, Diane. Give me one moment, It's the Zoom is linking right now. There we go, is it active? Oh, try and unmute yourself again. Okay, how's that? Very yes. good. Excellent. Very good. Well, I want to thank everyone for the participation. Uh, Schiller Institute, the Executive Intelligence Review for a great panel. Um, I have several very pertinent questions in regards to uh, the conversation, mm -hmm. but I think the first and foremost is in regards to uh, revelations of one, uh, the UK involvement uh, with the sabotage of Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2, and then also revelations in regards to coming to the from to us from the gray zone that uh, there are documents that reveal that there are a cell of British military intelligence figures who are actually organizing to train covert uh, Ukrainian partisan army with explicit instructions to attack Russian targets in Crimea. How soon does Russia or where is the line of saying that Russia identifies that it's directly in military conflict with the UK? And that's my question. Uh, I'll give a two-minute two answer and then somebody could jump in. Um, first of all, understand that the British have far more latitude than the United States does to carry out covert act. Um, we can sit here and lambast the CIA all we want, and they deserve much of it. But the fact of the matter is, CIA is still limited to uh, that that can be done through a presidential finding, which means that you have to take it up to the president. The president has to issue uh, permission and this permission has to be briefed to Congress. And um, it, it would be a bridge too far to think that the CIA would come up and propose 
uh, the conduct of what is in effect an act of war against Russia. Um, but the British have no qualms about this. Uh, first of all, the British understand that they operate under the protection of the American nuclear umbrella. Um, and their prime minister is able to uh, do make certain authorities uh, that are independent of parliamentary and uh, oversight. Um, and so it doesn't come as a surprise that the British are in fact doing this. Uh, understand that the Russians are a very mature nation with a lot of experience and uh, they know the game that's being played. Uh, Russia will not be sucked into a trap of uh, overreacting, uh, thereby politically liberating the United States and others to carry out actions that they currently are unable to for political reasons. Um, Russia has said that they will respond uh, symmetrically or asymmetrically at a time and place of their choosing, and they will do so. And this response may be in a manner which is, um, it, it cannot be um, determined by the public at large. Russia is not in the business of winning the propaganda war. Russia is in the business of winning the war. The ultimate um, you know, declaration of victory will be the declaration of victory. When they win the war against Ukraine and when they are able to compel Europe into accepting a new European security framework, uh, it won't matter what England did. Uh, what Russia will not do, I believe, is uh, carry out some sort of precipitous action designed to assuage public opinion or to put a bandage on um, you know, Russian honor. Uh, Russia wins by winning, and they're winning. And it doesn't matter what the British do, um, they're not gonna stop this. Uh, that doesn't, I'm not saying this as someone who's pro-Russian, I'm saying this as a, just a stone cold analyst who's taking a look at the facts. The British are pretty good at little commando raids here, there, and everywhere. Uh, but remember, the British did dip, we did Normandy. That's all I'm gonna say. Thank you, Scott. Okay. Oh, Suzanne Monk, you're here. Why don't you go ahead? And then I have a couple of questions for our international guests. Uh, yes, my question is uh, pretty straightforward and simple. Uh, the beginning of this conflict, we knew that Russia invaded in part to stop and uh, eliminate the threat of bioweapons laboratories that were funded and operated by the United States and NATO. States admitting those bioweapons treaty violations? In other words, do we get out of World War III without first having Nuremberg 2.0? Anyone want to try and answer that question? Real quick, then I'll just say this. Um, the world, there's not going to be a World War III because of the biolabs. The biolabs have been uncovered. They're being dismantled. Uh, the truth is out there. The United States, of course, isn't going to allow a tribunal to take place. It would be unrealistic. The only way a tribunal would take place is if the United States were defeated. And as an American citizen, I won't permit the United States to be defeated, and no, neither will 350 of my fellow citizens. Uh, there's not a power in the world that can defeat us. The only power that can defeat America is the American people, who, this is the key here, need to be educated about what their government has done. It's imperative that the truth be told to the American people about the ongoing violations of the biological toxins and weapons convention. Um, and it's a duty and responsibility of everybody here. If we're concerned about nuclear weapons, we should be equally concerned about biological weapons. The truth is out there. We just need to find the vehicle to tell the truth. The only way to solve Americans' problems is through the peaceful revolution of the American people using the tools of democracy. As Ray McGovern said, we have to take the fight to the government. We take the fight. Any other nation wants to take a fight to America, they're going to run into people like me who, while we may be angry at our country, love our country and will yield to nobody. 
Yeah, let me just announce that we have a number of written questions. Also, we have received, so we will go to those at the point that we uh, that we can. We have a few people from the press, I think, who are still with us and are going to be asking questions. But Diane, you also said you had something for our international guests as well. Yeah, I do for um, either any of our French um, guests or also Helga, which is one, what is the view of European leaders is it, or the people, I should say, which is more important, the people in terms of the, that Russia is not going to lose this. And two, from France, uh, is there a way that France could get out of NATO or at least out of some of the agreements? Is there much sentiment toward that? Is that even a possibility? <clears throat> I guess, yes. general, yeah. I think uh, France uh, public opinion is now uh, divided in two camps. The camps of people manipulated by the mainstream media, which all say the same thing about Russia. Russia is an enemy, Russia should be defeated. So that's, uh, that's um, the parole of the medias. Medias repeat that again and again and again. And certain people are uh, just uh, intoxicated by, by the medias. But you have a, a part of educated people uh, in, in all uh, sectors of the country, I would say military, a member of parliament, um, justice and uh, university, a lot of people now understand that uh, Russia has some reason to have done what they have done. So uh, I think the more the, the time is going and the more uh, people, uh, the, the, the people will switch gradually on the side of understanding what Russia did in Ukraine. That is to say, defending his uh, sovereignty, defending uh, uh, the, the sec national security of uh, Russia. So that's gradually enter in the, in the head of common people. So I think uh, the winter will be hot because uh, all the consequences of the war in Ukraine will start to, uh, to be painful for the, for, for the French. And uh, uh, opinion, public opinion will switch with in inflation, very high level of inflation. Uh, the, uh, say we, say a lot of people will be unable to pay their bills at the end of the month. And that will, uh, that will uh, create uh, chaos in the country. You know, you, you will have, you, you will have, uh, demonstration, a lot of uh, of um, disorder in the country, and and I think uh, the politicians will be obliged to take that in account into account, and 
on the other side, I think that Putin knows that very well. He knows that in all Western countries, people are starting to to make small uh, rebellion, revolution, and he knows very well that everything will increase in uh, and maybe will oblige uh, Western government, the Union, uh, European government to do something and to sit for negotiation. But at the, at the time, uh, when this, the Union European leader will take this decision, they will be in position of weakness. They, they will be weak because their public opinion will have, have switched. And I think the war in Ukraine is not, not only a military war, it's an economic war also. And the resilience of the population will prevail at the end of the, of the party. And I think for that reason, I think because what you say at the beginning, Russia cannot afford to lose and Russian population has a resilience much higher than Western uh, resilience. So I think that will uh, shape the future, the next months of, uh, of Western population, of Western uh, state. I think we will go divided. We will divide uh, between uh, ourselves. Certain country will, will try to escape NATO. And uh, in France, you have a movement of uh, to, to exit uh, from uh, military uh, integrated uh, NATO, military wing. We don't want a lot of people and a former military of my generation doesn't want NATO anymore because we realize that NATO is drawing us uh, in, uh, in problems in, in, uh, in their war, which are not our war. It's a war, US war are not European war. And we, we have to dissociate as soon as possible from NATO. Okay, let me just go over this with you, Diane, to see if we've got the same list here. So I think Nick Brana is next, then Karen Wilson. Uh, then we have also a couple of written questions. One is from Yuka and is one is from Mario. I have those. You may not have those. So I no, I don't. And also Bernie Holland should be added somewhere in there. Okay, so then let's just do it in this and order. And Dennis, let me just tell everyone I have to leave at one o'clock. It's three days before the election, so I can't stay here much longer. But um, so people know if I disappear. Thank you very much. Also, right. Jacques wanted to comment. And Jacques wants to comment. I see Bray's got his hand up. So let's do it in this way. Okay. Zayed, you better say any, any summary word you want to say to everybody right now, because we're going to go in that order, I think. Okay. Well, I will hear from Nick shortly, which I appreciate because, I mean, we do have to speak out and the candidacy is a platform for having a voice, which has begun begun to have more and more of a 
resonance, uh, but combined also with the action of some people who are here, Jose, who's hidden in the background, who confronted AOC and various other people, and most recently the man who said we learned to lie, cheat, and steal in the CIA, Mike Pompeo. Um, this is very important because what you see by the cover, the way these things go quote unquote viral in the social media is because there is a resonance. I think people know that we are in grave danger and they know that our leadership is grossly both out of touch with reality and corrupted by what they perceive as their own personal small interests. Um, but this is not a fight that we can afford to lose. Those of us who insist on peace and a new security architecture. And I just, again, want to express my gratitude for everybody who is here. Helga, the work you're doing internationally um, is crucial. The military experts, um, Jacques, our French friends, we, um, there's going to be, I should say, another conference November 22nd of a group of legislators from around the world. We have to do everything in our power to get off of this trajectory. And my question about not being like the crowd in the emperor's new clothes and going along with the naked emperor who's bearing a nuclear bomb um, has to be taken very seriously. So that's, that's what I, would say and thank you everybody okay very good ray i just wanted to say that uh, i really appreciate the courage the guts displayed by diane and by those who support her all of the rest of you including uh, scott ritter who has been a terrific support to diane and uh, whom the new york state people can no longer completely avoid or uh, mute. So my my hats off to Diane. I wish her good luck on November twenty second. Hopefully she will be senator elect. Okay. So now we go to Nick Brana. Yes. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you, everybody. Uh, my name is Nick Brana. I'm uh, the national chair of the People's Party. I'm very pleased, very happy, reassured to see you hosting uh, this get together uh, today, it's urgently needed. I worked for the Democrats, including John Kerry, Terry McCullough, and Bernie Sanders before leaving the Democratic Party and founding the People's Party, along with others who worked with me at the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016. Uh, and we agree at the People's Party that this is the moment of greatest existential risk to humanity and the world itself, and have called for the disruption of politicians at their events across the country, as we've seen from Jose and so many others at the Schiller Institute, uh, in in some in, in an act of real courage. Uh, I myself am just returning uh, with a couple of others uh, from a disruption of Tim Kaine's uh, event with Jennifer Wexton uh, here in Virginia. My members of Congress, a lifelong resident in Virginia, there she is a uh, uh, my member of Congress. Uh, and Tim Kaine is my senator. Uh, they, of course, affirm, affirmed the now unanimous Democratic Party line that is essentially a nuclear war policy with no realistic off-ramp or end to the war in Ukraine and support for the troops 
that are now openly being sent into Ukraine, the American troops. I had two questions, one for Scott, uh, and that is, how important do you believe that a Russian victory in Ukraine is to China? Uh, what actions do we expect China, do you expect China to take? For example, if the US follows through on General Petraeus's threat on behalf of the US to assemble a coalition of the willing to invade from the West and take a chunk of the country. And I had a second question for you, Ray, uh, and it's good to see you again. Uh, does the U.S. acknowledge the reality of nuclear winter in the Pentagon? In effect, does the United States acknowledge that a nuclear war cannot be won, that it would destroy global agriculture, supply chains, and the world, even in the completely ludicrous scenario that you could wipe out Russia with nukes before they fired a single nuclear weapon or struck you a single time. Thank you. Okay, I'll do my best to answer that question. Um, first of all, thank you for the question. Russia and China are two sovereign states. They're not allies, they're friends. Friendship is better than allies, we've been told. Uh, but the reason why I bring this up is that um, you know, China has not been a cheerleader for the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It, uh, in fact, the Russian actions uh, fly in the face of established Chinese principled policy, uh, which is in opposition to, uh, to things of this nature. Uh, but China and Russia met on February 4th, where they, uh, they, they entered a 5,000 plus word joint statement that had been negotiated for some time uh, that, that, that spoke of the two of them working together in a collaborative fashion to defeat the rules-based international order, that's code word for the American NATO singularity, and uh, to promote a law-based multipolarity um, that would be represented in some shape by uh, something they call the Trans-Eurasian Economic Union. I want to emphasize the word economic union. Uh, that's the direction China wants to go. China's not looking for military domination. They're looking for um, a competitive economic environment where they'll be a big player in the game. Um, China will not commit uh, troops or military resources to uh, help Russia solve the issue of Ukraine. It is up to Russia to do this. Uh, and Russia is doing this. What China will do is uh, ensure that Russia is able to sustain itself economically uh, throughout this crisis, and they have done so by uh, purchasing Russian energy and encouraging others to do the same. Um, and this is actually more important to Russia than the, you know, Russia is fully capable of handling not only Ukraine, but the collective West. And uh, while Petraeus may, um, you know, look good on TV saying what he said, there's just no viability to the notion that the United States and a coalition of the willing are going to uh, intercede into Ukraine. It would mean nuclear conflict because Ukraine, uh, Russia will not differentiate between uh, that intervention and a NATO intervention. And the powers that be know this. China also knows that therefore, but for the grace of God, go them, meaning that the conflict that NATO, the collective West is waging against Russia and Ukraine right now is the future of China and Taiwan if Russia does not prevail, that the best way forward for China to have a peaceful integration with Taiwan is for Russia to prevail in Ukraine militarily and thereby send a, a, a shot across the bow of NATO that uh, your, your interventions in what are the internal affairs of other nations um, will not end well for you. Um, China is not seeking a conflict with the West, um, but China will not uh, shirk away from what it deems to be um, its historical mandate 
of a one China inclusive of Taiwan. Um, so China isn't going to sit back and let Russia lose. China is doing everything they can to ensure a Russian victory because Russia and China have a relationship stronger than any alliance, according to them. And that relationship depends on both nations being at the table to ensure that this dream of a trans-Eurasian economic union becomes reality. Thank you. Okay, um, let me just ask if anyone else from the panel has a comment about that. If not, we will go to the next question. I had a question for Ray about nuclear winter and whether the US and the Pentagon acknowledge the reality. Uh, they would have to be idiots not to acknowledge it. Uh, that's not to say that some local or even strategic commander could just sort of dismiss it or prescind from it, as philosophers say. We have remarks by the head of SAC, or they call it STRATCOM now, the Strategic Air Command, okay? And he's talking about these little tactical missiles. Hey, yeah, it might come to a nuclear, kind of small nuclear thing. So again, it doesn't matter what McGovern thinks. It's what Vladimir Putin thinks as he looks on all this. And he is convinced partly by Biden having, renege, having to renege on promises he made on the 30th, 30th of December last year. Who's in charge? Is it the head of the White House? Is it these unwashed sophomores that are advising him? Or is it more likely the head of the Strategic Air Command? So when I'm sort of in that kind of position, Vladimir Vladimirovich Putin, I have to prepare for the worst, the more so since my generals and my admirals are looking over my shoulder. That's why it's so delicate. Thanks for the question. Okay, very Thank good. You. Very good. Uh, now, uh, Karen Wilson. Hold on one second. Okay. And, okay. I'll just wait. There's there's several other questions. Hmm? I see her on screen, but she's muted. Uh, can you see me now? Well, we can, can hear you now. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. I um, uh, the reason I'm here is uh, because I uh, I was one of the probably hundreds of thousands who saw the videos of the uh, Schiller people standing up and confronting. Uh, uh, politicians on their uh, support of war. Um, and uh, I contacted Schiller uh, because my background is, is an organizer for anti-war. Uh, I built the, uh, actually by myself, I built the first anti-war work group in DSA when it was, start, when it was growing right after the Bernie Sanders campaign. And this is something that is very much needed uh, so I, I basically just going to say a couple of things about the anti-war movement in the United States. There is one. Um, some, a message came up. There is an anti-war uh, movement in the work uh, in the United States. The problem is, is that it's old. Uh, the, the people who are part of it are old. They're elderly. I worked with Berrigan's uh, 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 widow. Uh, we were protesting the, uh, the the war in Yemen, 
in uh, 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 what is uh, that square in uh, Washington uh, in New York City? I can't remember. Uh, uh, I can't remember the name of it. But we would stand there with our signs explaining what was going on. Um, and I was in DSA building the working uh, the uh, the first working uh, anti-war work group and trying to get them over to these older elements that are there who are waiting for us to come. They're still there. And so that, that's an untapped resource. Uh, so, um, so, but going to the question of what does these politicians think and what does these uh, Newland and Sullivan and all that, those people think, they, it doesn't matter what they think. At the end of the day, history uh, in the decisions of nations, it is the will of the people that decides these things. It is the, now is the time for the people to intercede. We have a problem. We have some crazy people. Who knows what they're thinking? It doesn't matter what they're thinking. We just have to intercede. So I'm here to advocate for the building of an anti-war movement. Um, uh, again, and bringing them into where they already exist. Um, and then the, uh, the uh, last thing I'll say is that uh, this has to lead to the original, um, the, the origin of this problem of that we have to now talk about nuclear war again. I grew up in, my dad was in the military. I was, uh, I lived in West Berlin. That was ground zero for nuclear war. And you don't want to go through that. I lived in anxiety. I was a kid. I should have been thinking about other things. And people do understand, regular people do understand, they're not ignorant, they are not informed. And, and people are very logical. The people in Biden's cabinet are insane. And so it's there, the, the will is there, it's just getting it organized. And so I know how to do that. So I'm gonna be working with Anastasia on it. But we have to, at the end of the day, uh, we need to build a party. Uh, because we're not, our interests are not being represented in Congress. There is no sane American person that wants nuclear war. So we have to, this is where all roads have to leave. It's got to be a mass party. It's got to cut across all lines. It's got to cut across all politics. It's got to cut across the identity politics. You can't have it there because we have even bigger issues. We have other issues too. We have economic issues in this country that people are very angry about. And the anti-war movement that needs to be built can tap into those things to finally build the uh, and the the party, the political party that we need. Um, uh, right now, the independents are the largest uh, part of the of political identity. We're at forty-three percent. Democrats are at twenty-four percent. Republicans are at thirty uh, percent. We are right now the majority, and th that is the solution to this problem, the long-term solution to this problem. That's all I have to say. Okay, well, thank you. I see that Jacques Cheminat has his hand up, and we also, I believe, have um, Kynan, who's one of the people who's been doing the interventions. So I'm gonna go to Jacques first, uh, and then uh, we'll go to Kynan. Okay. Jacques, you're muted. Yeah. What's something about France? 75% uh, of the French voters have either abstained or voted uh, for 
candidates calling in principle to get out of the integrated command of NATO. So there is a majority against NATO and a majority against the uh, financial oligarchy. But there is there are two fake oppositions, a fake left and a fake right wing. And the capacity of the government is to divide to rule and to exacerbate this division. So there cannot be a clear cut opposition. In this situation, the domestic economic consequences of sanctions on Russia are going to be uh, felt uh, strongly and uh, create in broader and broader segments of the population a new wave of anger. So this anger has to get a, a form, has to get a political expression, which is not uh, blind. It should be in the sense of what Elga said before, uh, economic uh, priority of common development in the, inside a country like France, but inside other countries and internationally, according to our new Bretton Woods proposal and what Lyndon LaRouche has defined. So this has to be for the people a way to see into the future beyond geopolitics and beyond the fixation on winners that try to get all uh, the financial profit of their winning, but instead a sense of common development. And in that way, and that answer to a, another question, a lot of people are calling for France to play a role together with, if possible, Germany, a role uh, that would break with the impotence that they have manifested to defend the Minsk agreements, and now to go with China, trying to create the conditions for a diplomatic solution and create a community of development at a international level. So we are really fighting for that in many, just before the Gilets Jaunes developments here, uh, I said that I forecasted that a period of anger was going to come. Now there is a new period of anger that it's coming, but it should take a shape. It should be uh, represented by a new type of leadership. And in that sense, what's happening in France is no different than what's happening in other countries, except that you have this past goalist exception, uh, but there is a need for a new type of leadership committed on what I'm trying to say. And Diane Sayer represents precisely that. That's why, even if I am not American, I can say that I support what she means as a leadership, as a quality of leadership for her courage, her dignity, and her capacity to think at the same time in economic, cultural, and <clears throat> international terms. And this brings to people a sense that there is what Ray McGovern calls, that there is something which represents a creative example for the coming not only after us, but for us all in this coming period. That's extremely, extremely urgent. Okay, we're gonna bring up in a minute, uh, we have Bernice Holland, and we have two questions with several, actually we're called in. Before we do that, I want, uh, I think we have Kynan, Kynan Thistlewaite, is he there? Can you hear me? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah, okay, yeah, go ahead. Okay, um, so yeah, I just wanted to say a little bit about the intervention process of which both me 
Jose um, and many others have been involved in. And it really kicked off when Jose had done these interventions on people like Congressman Bauman, um, Kamala Harris, and Senator Gillibrand. And, you know, I'm pretty sure a lot of people have seen the AOC intervention, which went viral recently. And of course, what we were there for was to confront her on the danger of the war crisis, which so many people have talked about now. And the fact that she was elected supposedly as a progressive, um, she was anti-war, and yet she's been funneling all this money into Ukraine um, to provoke um, an escalation. And she's bringing us on the brink of a thermonuclear catastrophe. And it went viral for the reasons that Diane stated and that people are resonating with it. People don't want to fight this war. People think that you know, the hyperinflationary blow, which we're facing is a much bigger deal than blowing all of ourselves up. So it went viral. And as a result of it, people had been speaking out more. Um, we've had a lot more younger contacts um, who are going out and doing their interventions for the first time. And an example of this is one that happened recently with um, Mike Pompeo at Yale University. I was involved in it, Jose was, and our friend Ben Smith came and he recorded what we had to say um, and he himself spoke up. So it's powerful. People are actually getting inspired by it to do what Ray talked about, which I really liked when you talked about this, Ray, of the NOAA principle of actually building this arc in which everyone has to play a leading role. Um, and also, just another thing to mention, um, one of our members of the Schiller Institute had um, proposed this idea of, of having these candle night vigils where we sing a four-part canon um, called Dona Nobis Pacem, which means grant us peace in Latin. And we go out and we sing, these, we sing in these vigils to um, protest against the war in a nonviolent fashion. So people are actually raising up standing up and they're protesting in the spirit of the creative nonviolent action which Martin Luther King you know did so successfully um, in the civil rights movement so I think that's what I just wanted to say just what this process is like and yeah okay thanks and also we'll be hearing I think from Jose in a little bit as well um, let me just check one thing Scott I see your hand is still up did you have something you wanted to say Yes, just real quick. Um, first of all, Karen Wilson. I wrote a book called Waging Peace, The Art of War for the Anti-War Movement. Anti-war movement's dead. This book is useless. You say you want to bring the anti-war movement back, send me your address. I'll mail you a copy of the book. Use it in good health. Um, I have a question for the French participants in this conference. France has an independent nuclear deterrent force. What needs to be done to get France willing to come up to the table and negotiate away this nuclear deterrence? Because there can't be nuclear disarmament until France is ready to disarm in a nuclear fashion. So that's my question to my French colleagues. Okay, who would like to take that? Jacques? I I'll take it. Okay, go ahead. <clears throat> Wait. Uh... The camera is on me, so <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. I will try to answer that. Go ahead. First of all, uh, I would like to 
to remind to all people around this, uh, this table that um, the French president says clearly that the French nuclear weapons will, will be used only if the very existence of, uh, of the French soil is endangered. So if we are not, if we have no uh, threat against our own soil, we will not be part of a NATO nuclear war. The nuclear war, the, our nuclear bombs are not allied with the nuclear bombs of NATO. That's very clear and it has been said very clearly by the French president. So now uh, for negotiation, uh, <clears throat> I, I think the pre president is like yours and like a lot of head of state in the European Union. They are not free for what they, they are doing. They are under the pressure of somebody much more powerful than them, than them, globalist. They are in the end of globalist. They have been elected because of the money of the oligarchy, world oligarchy and uh, globalist, neoconservative uh, uh, people. You have yours in the US, we have ours, neoconservative people in France. They also have the lead on the foreign affairs uh, ministry department in France. And it's the same in Germany, it's the same in the UK, you know. They have the same people, same kind of people having the, the control of the country and the control of foreign affairs in the country. So uh, I think the French president will never sit alone because he is not in a situation of sovereignty. He is not uh, the leader of a sovereign country. He is just uh, the dog of the tool of uh, US, uh, US uh, Department of Foreign Affairs, which leads uh, the whole game. So I don't think a French president will sit alone uh, if he is not supported by Germany, for example. Maybe with Germany, they can do something together, but not uh, the French president will not give his bomb to NATO, but will not sit for negotiating uh, whatever. I don't think so. Jack, what do you think about that? Well, uh, I think that it's wrong to put the issue on the basis of nuclear military disarmament. It's a big mistake. The principle should be, what are we going to do with nuclear energy, with a nuclear energy principle for peace and secure a stable, secure, and a community of development system for the future. And then we can have the nuclear disarmament, all for nuclear disarmament, but it should only be if you have a principle of peace that is positive, and it could not be only a negative uh, position against war. 
you cannot stop war if you have not a solution for peace. And the solution for peace is the only way to create in uh, our people, in the, our, the peoples of our countries, the, the, say the idea that the community of development is something and working for the future generations is something much more uh, uh, necessary than to win against the other. The uh, principle of Carl Schmitt, of, which is a geopolitical principle, of French and enemy should be absolutely thrown to the river and we can go in the direction of the new Silk Road of the Chinese, at least the principle of the new Silk Road with connectivity, community of development and a win-win system. And then the nuclear disarmament should take place in, in, in that context. Uh, yeah, and I'll also say here that there is a couple of questions on that same theme. I'm not gonna intervene because we have a certain order and some other people have gotten in, but I just wanna reference this to Helga and to Cliff. There are a couple of questions pertaining to that area. Um, uh, I just wanna make sure that there's a couple of people that we get to. And I'll just say to everybody, so everybody knows what's evolving. We got a lower people getting into the discussion, which I think is good. And as long as everybody's prepared to stay with that and keep answering questions, I think we can get a lot out of that. Let me just ask, before we go to Bernie Holland, who is up there, I see him. I understand we have one person may have to get going and that's Kim.com. Is he there? And does he want to say something? Awesome. I'm the, I, I, I uh, tagged Kim.com on the uh, post on Twitter to make him aware of this conference. So yeah, not that I'm taking credit, he's here, but that's he pretty is. cool. Okay, fine. So we'll, we'll take that if Mr. Holland will allow. Thank you. I'm here. Oh, this is awesome. Okay, great. Go ahead. All right. Can you guys hear me all right? Welcome, Kim. Yes, it's pretty good. We can. Well, thank you, first of all, for having me. Um, very nice panel that you guys uh, put together. Uh, I have a very simple question. I would like to ask the panelists, if they can explain the root cause of the U.S. proxy war in Ukraine in 60 seconds. And after the answers, I would like to briefly share my view. Well, we can't take all the panelists, but there's a few. Ray's got his hand up, so let him go. Ray? God, I'd have to answer this. Thank you. Can, can you hear me okay? Yes. Yes. Okay. 60 seconds. Thanks, Kim, for the question. It started... Uh, when our country assured Gorbachev that NATO would not move one inch to the east. That in return for the reunification of Germany, mind you, a big quid, okay? And then we had the coup in Ukraine. After NATO said in its pompousness that Ukraine and Georgia would become part of NATO. The coup in Kiev, first thing they said, we're going to join NATO, okay? Then fast forward to just last year, or uh, yeah, 2021, when overtures were made for a new European security realm, when on the 30th of December last year, our president promised Putin that no strike weapons, offensive strike 
weapons, nuclear weapons, would be emplaced in Ukraine. He reneged on that. And Putin decided on the 12th of February, in his conversation with Biden, oops, somebody has overruled Biden. They even reserve the right to put what they've put already in Romania and Poland in Ukraine. That was two weeks before the invasion. The other very important aspect, which Scott has alluded to, is that China was on board. Now, China doesn't like people violating the sovereignty of other people, but China gave Putin an exception to this rule and supported his core interests and ever since has been very reluctant to say anything pejorative about what Putin has done. Do the math, China and Russia against the United States and what's left of NATO, and you have the outcome of what will happen. Okay, does anybody else wish to answer? From the Let background? me go, because I, I have to run, so I'm just gonna okay. give you a six. Kim, you said 60 seconds. I'm gonna give it to you in <laughs> six. Ready? All right. Hubris, arrogance, ignorance, greed, sustainment of the American singularity. That's it. <laughs> All right. So, Kim, did you want to say something in response? No, I, I, I listened to everyone first. Okay. Well, I, I don't think, I think everybody else is not speaking uh, at the moment. And we've got a lot of other people. I, I think Helga them. has raised her hand and uh, Stephen Starr as well. As she, I haven't seen, I don't see it. Stephen Starr, if you're there. Hello? Yes, I, I was going to also there. I had okay. a separate question, but I just think okay. uh, in regard to Kim's question, I just I can't do any better than what uh, Scott and Ray have already said. OK, very good. Helga. I think it is a larger issue because I think we are really experiencing an epochal change. This is the epoch of the fight between the sovereign nation state and the oligarchical system, which erupted in the 15th century when the nation state first emerged. In 600 years, this fight has been ongoing. And now we come to the end of that because now the fight is between those who want to maintain the colonial order and keep the majority of nations in colonial um, dependency and the rising nations of the global south who want to end that order. And I think that that is uh, the larger issue in which even the Ukraine issue and NATO are just ephemeris. Okay. And I think that's going to be it for the panel. So Kim, if you have something to, to say, go ahead because we have other uh, people and uh, questions. But if you have a sure, response, thank you. please go ahead. Well, thanks for the answers. I think the whole thing started in 2007, 2008 with the global financial crisis that originated in the United States. After that, the reliability of the United States as a partner in global financial affairs was destroyed. And in 2009, Russia hosted the first BRICS summit to establish a better international financial system with China, India, Brazil, and South Africa, and also future BRICS Plus partners. So BRICS is challenging the US reserve currency status. That is what started the new Cold War with Russia and China. 
the US knows that without reserve currency status, it will be bankrupt. The US national debt is now at 31 trillion. Total US debt is at 92 trillion and total US unfunded liabilities are at 172 trillion. And all of that without any surplus to ever pay for any of it. Without money printing on the backs of other nations, it is simply game over for the United States. BRICS was on track to launch its new global financial system by 2030. And Ukraine is the tool for conflict with Russia. Taiwan is the tool for conflict with China. And eventually the US and NATO will be at war with Russia and China. The United States simply has no choice. It's either a war with Russia and China to stop BRICS or the total financial and economic collapse of the United States. So Ukraine to me is a sideshow and the main event is yet to come. Okay, well, thank you very much. And uh, you know, let me also say to everybody that's on, uh, I had said before at the beginning, you, I don't think you were there, Kim, that virtually any of the any group of the people certainly deserve their their own seminar and forum. And I would just uh, uh, welcome the notion of a symposium. Uh, this is we're doing it now, but there would be a lot of matters that would uh, uh, certainly uh, stand a, a greater in-depth in discussion. So I want to thank you for initiating that. And I'm now going to let uh, Mr. Bernie Holland, who's been more than patient, uh, step up and do his question. Thank you, Dennis. Right, I'm going to keep this brief because um, I haven't got time to express my appreciation to everyone for what they're doing. Uh, this is for Ray. Um, the incredible uh, speech that Vladimir Putin delivered to the session at Valdai. Uh, I would like to refer to this speech and put a question to you, Ray. Mm -hmm. Here's the, uh, it was the question and answer session after this. This speech was an extraordinary speech in which Putin never disparaged any other lead, world leader. He spoke about the importance of economic um, solidarity with the BRICS, the ASEAN, Shanghai co cooperation, the uh, community of Latin American countries, and the importance of um, the uh, a, a global, a pan-global alliance. Uh, however, I want to go to the question and answer session for this um, uh, valid eye, where Fyodor Lukyanov, Fyodor Lukyanov, who was on the stage with uh, Vladimir Putin, um, said this, I quote, two years ago, you spoke highly about President Erdogan at the Valdai Club meeting, saying that he did not go back on his words, but did what he said he would do. Many things have happened over the past two years. Has your opinion of him changed? Vladimir Putin replies, no, he is a competent and strong leader who is guided above all and possibly exclusively by the interests of Turkey, its people and its economy. This largely explains his position on energy issues and, for example, on the construction of Turk Stream. Now, I'll just jump to the bottom of this piece. He says, 
But there is a desire on both sides to reach agreements, and we usually do it. In this sense, President, this was because uh, Putin and Erdogan have not seen eye to eye on certain things, but they realize the importance of uh, 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 maintaining a good relationship. So there is a desire on both sides to reach agreements, and we usually do it. In this sense, President Erdogan is a consistent and reliable partner. This is probably his most important trait, that he is a reliable partner. Now, referring back to what Daryl Egan said earlier about the deterioration of relationships, um, I would like you to uh, offer your comment, Ray, about the importance of forging um, healthy uh, relation, healthier relationships um, in order that the USA and the, the, the uh, nations of the Anglosphere can be persuaded to enter the BRICS project. Over to you, Ray. Well, I think the key here um, is the reliable partner. Now, uh, Putin also mentioned that this fellow uh, Erdogan is a really tough negotiator and we have our differences and he's really a tough guy because he always thinks about Turkey first. Can you imagine that? He thinks about Turkey first. Well, he's really thinking about Turkey a lot now because it looks like the Turks and the Russians will work out a deal where a lot of that gas and oil that used to be uh, transported through Nord Stream are gonna come through Turkey now. Turkish could get even richer, and those that had sort of depended on Nord Stream are going to get not all poorer, but they're going to get colder this winter. Okay, so he and Erdogan have this this uh, very good relationship where they recognize that each one has their own national interests, right? But he's a reliable partner. Now, comparisons are invidious. Here's a real invidious comparison. The U.S. is not a reliable partner. And I will harken back to something that most people don't know. And that is, on the 30th of January last year, the Kremlin made it known that they had to talk to Biden right away. <laughs> White House said, why right away? We're going to meet in Geneva just nine days from now on January 9, 10. And they said, look, Mr. Putin wants to talk to Mr. Biden. Now, to his credit, Biden said, okay. Now, what's the readout? Quote, Mr. Biden agreed that the U.S. has no, this is a quote, has no intention of putting offensive strike missiles in Ukraine, period, end quote. Suffice to say, the next time they talked on the 12th of February this year, that promise or that offer had dissipated, fallen into cracks. None of the negotiators would even talk about it. So this is a reliable partner. So again, put yourself in Putin's position. Who's running the show in Washington? Was Biden overruled? Uh, it's hard to escape that impression. So who's running things? These uh, wet behind the ears sophomores? Blinken and uh, Blinken and Sullivan and, and Newland. Well, Newland's a little more clever than a sophomore, but it looks like they are in charge. So that's what Putin has to deal with. Again, his generals and admirals are looking over his shoulder. He's got to prepare for the worst. That's why the situation cries out 
for the kind of action that has been has been mentioned to my great delight by young people who don't have this color hair, but do it anyway. Thanks, Bernie. Thank you, Ray. Okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to Jacques, who has his hand up, but I have a question for Helga and also for Cliff. It's the same question on this BRICS matter. I've held this for a while, just out of you know the fact that people obviously had their hands up. So Jacques, you go ahead and then I'll ask the question. Just very briefly, uh, it's just uh, a, uh, an event in the which made us understand better what's happening presently. In 2006, uh, President Chirac, who sometimes have certain ideas despite his weakness, told his advisor, Gourdeau Montagne, go to Russia, tell Moscow that we want a security, stability, and economic cooperation agreement uh, in Europe. So Gordon Montagne went to Moscow. In Moscow, there was a lot of interest and they said, go and talk to the Americans. So Gordon Montagne went to the United States and he met Condoleezza Rice. And Condoleezza Rice yelled at him, it's not you little French dwarfs, dwarfs that are going to prevent us to extending ourselves towards the East. And uh, Gordon Montagne asked, but why? It's our economic mandate and that's it. So that's the oligarchy, uh, oligarchical view uh, when it's cornered that they have to extend its domination throughout the world world. And that's an in-depth reason, the geopolitical reason, the geopolitical financial reason of the wars. All right, so the question uh, came from Mario and it pertains to the Belt and Road Initiative <clears throat> and its relationship to the BRICS plus process. So um, the question uh, is, if Belt and Road were to become an official project of the BRICS plus, um, what does that mean? What does that do? Second, if there were a some sort of counter Belt and Road initiative launched by NATO, the Anglosphere, and so on, uh, the, the question is, does that provoke a war or is there a basis in all of this for peace? So I realized that's what the question is, but I wanted to refer this to Helga. Let me also just say to everybody, because they wouldn't necessarily know this, that Helga was recently, just yesterday actually, in discussion in China uh, about both the question of Germany's uh, involvement there, the discussions with Chancellor Schultz, but more importantly, also just the general idea of this whole project. So uh, Helga, I'd like you to go first and then Cliff, you may have a comment on that. Well, I think uh, because of the absolute um, unified um, mass media who are trying everything to suppress uh, news of that kind, people don't know. But in reality, you have the emergence of a completely new system whereby all the different organizations of the Global South, the BRICS, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the Eurasian Economic Union, the KiCA, that's the Organization for Confidence Building of, uh, I think, Central Asia, and many other organizations of the Global South, uh, African Union, <clears throat> the Dakar Consensus, which is being built as an alternative to the Washington Consensus, all of these organizations 
are in the active process of organizing a new world economic system, a new currency based not on monetarist values, but on the basket of commodities, therefore having a much larger stability. And uh, they're already doing, uh, involved, they're involved in the process of de-dollarization, doing a lot of trade in the national currencies, rupees, rubles, renminbi, and other currencies. And this is going to emerge. And so that is the powerhouse because the whole economic development has moved to Asia. And a lot of these countries are in Asia, but not only because now you have Brazil, Argentina. Brazil is already in the BRICS. Argentina is moving uh, towards that. Indonesia, uh, Nigeria, uh, other countries. So, you know, a new world is emerging. This is why I said before, the, the real reason for all of this is because the majority of the countries of the world do not want any longer to be under the uh, dictatorship of an oligarchy, which prevents their development. So that's why I'm think, I think this is an epochal change because, you know, what the non-aligned movement attempted with the Bandung Conference in 1955, and with all the conferences in Colombo and, you know, at that time, these countries were destabilized. Indira Gandhi was destabilized. Mrs. Bandaranaiki from Sri Lanka was uh, destabilized. Bhutto was actually assassinated. And there are the famous words by Henry Kissinger saying that they wanted to make a bloody example of him because he dared to raise the debt issue. Um, so a lot of momentum got lost and we know this very well because we were in the middle of that we were, we were not observers but we were organizers of this so this is now re-emerging and is re-emerging with a very powerful momentum because unlike in the uh, 50s 60s uh, when, when this uh, non-aligned movement uh, was uh, uh, active now they are allied with china and China has accomplished something which is uh, actually unique. And people should forget what they read in the media about China, communism, all of this. I know China very well. I have been there the first time in 1971 in the middle of the Cultural Revolution. And I have seen with my own eyes the vector of development. I have step by step going back once in a while, seen you know, how 850 million people got elevated out of poverty. China has now 850 million people. That's about, you know, uh, two times, no, more than two times the um, entire population of the United States. They have now a middle class, a wealthy mid or well-to-do middle class of 400 million. That's more people in the middle class than the American population or the European uh, approximately like that. So, you know, these countries are now united with China on the Belt and Road Initiative, whereby almost 150 countries cooperate. And, you know, it's not that these countries are being coerced into the debt trap. This is all war propaganda, you know, and China is not trying to impose their model on anybody. I mean, if you look at the, if you study Chinese history of the last 2,500 years since Confucius 
came into the picture and played a steady role in, in the state philosophy of China. Hey, I apologize, everyone. Oops, I think I interrupted Helga on accident. So, hey, um, I had to cut the stream. Uh, so hopefully I'm off the Zoom as well. Yeah, let me shut down everything. Make sure that it's shut down. So make sure that I'm not it. Hey, uh, yeah, so I want to thank you all for tuning in. I'm cutting the stream out. I put the link up at the top above to go to the Schiller Institute to uh, to continue with any of the question and answer scenario that they're, they're currently going through. Uh, so I want to thank the Schiller Institute as well as the intelligence uh, uh executive intelligence review for the invite to participate in today's um, press briefing and the replay will be available on all our social media feeds. So thank you all and everyone enjoy the rest of your day. Stay safe and God bless. I'm over and out.